in the keep of this huge castle, our leadership is at a large banquet, and uh, they are as arrogant and full of hubris as ever that our system just can't be breached and they're safe within the walls, as were so many leaders of Constantinople. And then um, the barracks are full of soldiers all slumbering and asleep, and the warning bell has had its dinger cut by a Chinese spy. Hi guys and welcome back to the state of it. I'm sitting here with Dad at the moment and we've just gotten up. It's a it's a bit of a wet morning outside. How are you feeling today, Dad? As good as a Monday allows one to feel. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that resounds with hope, doesn't it? Today we're going to be looking at Dad's revenge, uh, defense review, now or never, where he essentially... Uh, basically, it, in 2015, I wrote a review having been quite appalled at the way our defense policy had migrated under Cameron. And then I could see a similar decision coming up in 2020. So I decided to write a review which really shaped and hopefully directed that now or never moment whereby either we did invest in our defense suitably to deter our potential aggressors or we became subject to their aggression, hence the title now or never. So it was inspired by the 2015 defense review, but you wrote it last year. Yes, I wrote it. I wrote it for, well for before. clarity. Yes, there. <laughs> exactly. It was in two thousand and nineteen. So, in your review, you have said the government has a lukewarm approach to defence, but is that really fair? Because they've increased spending and they've identified areas of weakness in the armed forces in the twenty twenty review. Though there are, of course, some negatives. Do you think that it is lukewarm, or do you think you're just kind of beating them down a little bit? Based on the 2015 I, I don't think it's lukewarm. I think it's super lukewarm. Let's really be clear. You defend yourself against threats, and threats wax and wane over time. And uh, in periods of peace, there is hopefully a dividend when there are no threats on the horizon. And at times of war, when you are forced to defend yourself, historically, you can spend up to 50 and above percent of your GDP. And so those mistakes in the failure of deterrence become very expensive in terms of turning a whole economy into an effective war machine to survive. And if you track from the Second World War um, through the Korean War, and then you go down through the Cold War, at the end of the Cold War, there was naturally this con idea of a uh, a peace dividend. And so obviously everyone disarms and they start to spend on domestic growth and domestic agendas. And um, essentially, as long as there aren't any threats on the horizon, you can perpetuate that. The biggest failure that the West has suffered collectively, and Britain very, very clearly, is that Britain seems to be particularly good at deciding to disarm just before um, a, a true aggressor raises their head. Uh, and for example, you look at the Falklands uh, War, that was precipitated by the Defence Review uh, just before it, which was clearly designed to cut the, the, the Royal Navy to the bone even though it was involved in a Cold War in the North Atlantic, where it was a critical, pivotal force, especially in ASW warfare, anti-submarine warfare. And then the direct result was the Junta took advantage of it. They saw it as Britain's lack of intent to defend its its assets, the Falklands 8,000 miles away, and a war ensued. That war wasn't just a local war. That was the war that decided, I call it a pilot war, that decided the outcome of the Cold War. Because from that point onwards, America started to narrow the gap 
in terms of its defense capability to repel a land invasion across Europe, which was substantial threat, um, below the threshold of nuclear weapons. And, and if we'd lost that war, I think as the, um, Soviet Union lost its economic traction and became more and more cornered by its paradigm of a commodity driven economy coupled with large conventional defense expenditure, it may well have thrown the dice and the Cold War might have gone hot in the late eighties. But it didn't, and it didn't because Reagan deterred it through effective technology. And the other part of the leg was the premise of the USSR was that capitalism was weak and it would fall like a ripe apple from a tree to be plucked. And essentially, Thatcher's behavior had to go 8,000 miles, risk all, completely change that perspective. And the records in the Kremlin showed to that effect. So failure to defend, failure to spend money, and then an all-out desperate process, which seems like a little war. But that war did decide the fate of the Cold War, in my opinion. So you suddenly end up in a completely different path of decisions. But even if it is lukewarm, the 2020 review represents okay. a marked no, difference okay. to the 2015 uh, uh, okay. review. So, so Surely it's a step in the right direction. Well, a step. But the problem is this. Post 9-11, the Western democracies fo- focus on asymmetric conflicts, which involved the suppression of entities that were Islamically based. And my view about that was they could never fundamentally change our way of life. And they essentially, however, represented um, something that was sort of deeply concerning and needed to be countered. But we needed to maintain, as we did do when we worked in Northern Ireland, to, to maintain our perspective of peace. And I say our perspective because there are always two sides. But when we did that, we, we in the Cold War, we were running a Northern Ireland asymmetric conflict and we had a relatively high level of conventional capability. What happened in the post-9-11 world is we downgraded our conventional capability, thinking that peer-to-peer conflicts would never happen again, which is myopic at, at, at the best, and essentially focused on the asymmetric conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. And as a result of it, the warfighting capability of the army atrophied in the most incredible way. And the Navy, the Air Force became an adjunct to the army without any strategic perspective. I was warning in 2005, the rise of China was inevitable. It would be a hegemonic challenge first economically and then subsequently militarily and we would be involved and locked in a cold war from you know from 2015 all the way through to 25 in the peak of the commodity cycle and i was screaming blue murder to every senior politician and military commander i met i'd say prior to 2010 if you ask them did they see any traces of ccp or pla involvement in any form of the world and they were blind to it and they were blinded by the smokescreen of the islamic threat and then underneath that another threat has risen, which is really a a declining Russia under an opportunistic Putin, who has used what resources he has very cagely to develop military capabilities that fit right the way in the gaps that we've neglected. So Putin, Russia should never be a threat to the Western NATO. We've allowed it because of our negligence. So my argument of why it's super lukewarm is that essentially we ran down our defense capability in accelerating terms from the second Iraq war. And we essentially were engaged in a, a, a an anti-terrorist counterinsurgency structure, thinking we would never have a peer-to-peer conflict. And we have got two major peers rising in front of us. We've got Russia, which we should be able to counter. They should not be the threat they are. Uh, we've allowed them to be that threat. And their main threat is ASW and submarines interdicting the North Atlantic, just like the Second World War, the First World War, the Cold War, the same paradigm, shut the sea route off, isolate Europe. We need to protect against that. And they've introduced new, longer-range, surface-to-surface weaponry systems, which now threaten our fleets and our capabilities to operate, which we shouldn't have allowed. So that was negligence. Something more systematic has been the rise of China. 
And unlike other previous hegemonic dynamics, the enemy or the challenger was over there behind an iron curtain, didn't interact with you, and essentially they were separate. But the Chinese strategy has been very, very cunning. For 20 years, on all levels, they've been waging an asymmetric conflict with us. They've been undermining our mechanisms of governance, order, structure, using our investment to accelerate their manufacturing capability. We've effectively built the opposition, which is now entwined in us, and we can't pull them out at the moment. And that entwining has never showed itself more clearly than the spread of the pandemic, when the Chinese and the CC had inveigled our journals in, in terms of funding journals that then turned around and said it's zoonotic. The, the who that was inveigled in such a way as, as essentially they it encouraged the spread of the pandemic and didn't see it for what it was. So we're involved with this head to head and the threat level is as high as it ever was in the Cold War. The threat level is as high as it was in 37, 38 with Nazi Germany. And yet we're still spending 2%. Isn't it more akin to the early 30s rather than the late? Because people would be more aware if it was akin to the late 30s. It's still a build-up rather than the seconds before a breakout of conflict. No, I think we're closer than we realise. I th- I, and I think we're much later in that cycle. So I would argue and have argued in now or never that because we have we failed to invest over 20 years there are only a few weapon systems we have in our inventories that are contemporary and most of them are not contemporary the army has completely and utterly sidelined its capabilities and its leadership deserves to be chastised for for really you know, a dead end solution and the air force is really not that much better and the navy has shown considerable vision i would say under limited budgeted extremes to be ready for the shift back to a global maritime paradigm and that's really the big thing is britain also is not an insular european power anymore it is and has returned under post-brexit thought process to a global maritime trading society which means those sea routes those supply lines become our lifeblood that means we need a navy to protect them and we need an army to interdict on the land points all the way along and involve a protective mechanism it's no different from the mechanism strategy we use in the british empire it's all over again so we have three things happening we have the rise of russia we have the systematic rise of china and we have also a completely different paradigm where britain is seeking to be more interconnected to the whole world and more reliant on those trade routes as a result all of which which require considerable upgrading to our defence. So just going back to what I was saying a, a few minutes ago before I interrupted you, sorry about that. You talk about streamlining the military, about a united defence force that brings the army, navy and air force together. But this would take away from the competition between the forces and surely competition increases strength, like in the yeah. American system for people who compete for contracts. Um, no. So one of the problems we have in... We, ha- we have a number of structural problems with our defense protocols the first of all the ministry of defense is just not fit for purpose it's unable to acquire it's unable to run projects i mean look at the ajax you know this medium range well this medium size scorpion replacement for a reconnaissance vehicle has turned into a 40-ton monster that doesn't have an effective weapon system doesn't have armor has three people inside it and they don't know what to call it and they have the cheek to call it a medium tank it's not it's a complete bastardized vehicle with no purpose that should have been scrapped um and there are numerous projects like that that they've just trashed so we we need a far better um we need a number of things quite urgently we need groups of people that can think ahead to conceptualize what warfare will look like in a short order of time to therefore promote the right weapon systems and practice their actions and then integrate them into 
the current structure. So we need current warfighting capability and future warfighting capability that can be effectively phased in. One of the biggest things that we did in this review is we cut all our current capabilities, for example, and wherever possible and said, well, we're going to get future new weapons. And no one knows what those future new weapons look like. It's the most ludicrous. Don't worry, we'll be okay in 10 years when these wonderful future weapons look, look they come online. But for 10 years, which is our greatest risk gap, we're completely exposed. And that is negligence in terms of the defense of the realm. Why has the 2020 review identified Russia as the biggest threat we face, whereas your review has identified China? Why is there a switch around there? Why is there a disconnect between so, yours and theirs? So one of the really frightening things about the way China has manipulated Western perceptions is it has run campaigns of influence. And it's no coincidence that Boris Johnson's family have links to Chinese business. And um, there's a good reason why that takes place is because somewhere in the family Sunday conversation will be my business in China, which has made, in effect, Boris far more pro-Chinese throughout this. Our politicians have been pro-Chinese. Look at the Cameron-Osborne combination. Disastrous. The golden era you know, basically with our potential enemy that they couldn't see and all they saw was financial advantage for themselves. And Boris has been the same. That was a political interdiction from the highest level to fail to recognize China as our prime threat. And the result of that was if you don't recognize a threat, you don't have to spend the money. You just imagine if you'd said China is our prime threat, Russia is the, the closest threat, an immediate threat, and both are significant. You can't just spend 2%. You should be on five after the negligence and the lack of spending over 20 years. So part of it was not wanting to spend the money. And part of it was a subtle Chinese influence, which post the pandemic, we are more aware of. But I often think about the McCarthy trials, which happened, you know, after the Second World War, when the wall came down. And what they really were doing, what he did, and it seems very draconian now, but I understand the need for it. It was really the hunt for communist sympathizers inside America so you could throw them outside the walls. Because the analogy that I think of now in terms of where we are in the West is the West is a giant walled castle with the people living on the inside. And on the outside of those walls, the Chinese forces are gathering and they are significant and well-armed and deeply threatening. But our guards on the walls are confident because our walls have never been breached and they're tall, just like the walls of Constantinople. Within the walls, the population has been inveigled by Chinese influencers who have accessed our businessmen with deals and influence, our scientists with funding, our specific press and media journalists that people look up to who receive funding like the Lancet indirectly. And so every part of our society has been inveigled by a Chinese spy network to be pro-Chinese or blind to the threat. In the keep of this huge castle, our leadership is at a large banquet, and uh, they are as arrogant and full of hubris as ever that our system just can't be breached, and they're safe within the walls, as were so many leaders of Constantinople. And then um, the barracks are full of soldiers all slumbering and asleep, and the warning bell has had its dinger cut by a Chinese spy. And that's really where I think we are in the West. We're still asleep to an enormous threat which sits outside our walls and it's inside. So we need to really look at the people that take Chinese capital, for example, for their own advantage. We need to look at people that receive funding from China and we need to make it culturally unacceptable in this country to be in that position because we are in effect mortgaging the future of our children when we do that because 
we're going to really, really struggle to survive this massive tsunami which is coming our way. I really like that analogy. That was quite good. I like the little dinger being cut there. That was impressive. Um, <laughs> you talk about Africa being a key resource basin that China has infiltrated quite successfully over the past you know, few years, couple of decades. Is it lost or is it worth economically fighting over? So it's quite an interesting, um, it's a very good question. So just imagine that we are sitting in the strategic planning office of UK PLC and we are thumbing through the books of how Britain built its empire, its maritime empire. And in fact, it's the same set of rules, the trade routes which go to the Far East. Obviously, there's a trade route through the Mediterranean and through the Suez Canal. But as we uh, realized recently, it's very easy to block the Suez Canal. doesn't take much. Just block the lock gates and the whole thing's over. So in any kind of conflict, the trade route to Asia is either through the Arctic which the Russians are preparing to contest. And um, that's another whole topic of whether Biden can bring Putin on side. I think the meeting last week may well have an awful lot more below the surface ar around how to bring Russia back into the fold um, after the fact that Russia suffered the same level of pandemic influence from its so-called ally. And that, that wasn't an accident. It was a it was a laboratory release. But anyway, going back to it. So it's really like a rerun. So Africa represents resources, security of trade route that has to go around the, the coast on the west and the east and around the horn. So the security of that coastline is critical to our trade access and the resources in it. And secondly, if you can deny those resources to the Chinese, then where are they going to get them from? They're going to be a little bit like Nazi Germany was where its resources were thin and difficult to access. So yes, it's a new chessboard. Interestingly enough, African nations don't like the way the Chinese have interacted with them. So really what was a nascent virgin relationship where they just took the money and thought the Chinese were nice, all African nations understand that the Chinese are in it for the Chinese and they'll take whatever they can grab through their debt colonialism. So there's a huge opportunity and Biden and I think even Boris kind of understand that operating and offering a more alternative capital funding versus Chinese and replacing it is a great way to move the Chinese influence out. But they have a huge number of political influences. They're quite well inveigled in it. So it's a struggle. It's not an easy thing. And I do think it would be a really good task for the British Army in its lack of purpose to focus on the interdiction and operation in Africa, just as it would have done in a colonial time to, to keep those key ports open, those key routes and coastlines safe, and really to evolve into a much more US Marine Corps um, raiding force, which is heavily armed with missiles, air defense and surface to surface missiles, which control huge umbrellas and regions around them. And I think there's a new model that the British Army can adopt, which is far more expeditionary, which would really make an awful lot of sense. Um, and it needs some, some, some conventional power too in the combat zone. Do you feel like space is getting the attention it deserves in the 2020 review? Or do you think there's a lot more that can be given to that area of potential warfare? I, th I think I think the RAF is lost, if I'm really honest, in terms of, you know, the, the Jock Stirrup created or was a huge advocate of the manned fighter. And, you know, RAF fighters had to be manned. And we all know that the era of the manned fighter is, you know, probably on the cusp of change. Um, the Tempest is an interesting project. Uh, in that it is our, you know, our, we must remember our aerospace business in the Second World War and post the Second World War was equally as capable as America's. And it was part of British decline and political manipulation, like the TSR2, for example, that led to the demise of our capability to equal America's. At the moment, 
American war fighting planes are superior to anyone else's. And you've got to wonder what else is on the drawing board or in the skunk works. You know, when you look at the F-22 and the F-35, they're old now. So they'll have newer versions. The question is, is whether the BA, the Tempest program can match what comes out of America. And if it can, with all these quantum changes in technology, then building our own, you know, manned stroke drone system makes sense. But the trouble is, it's not going to be deployable for the next conflict. And the, and the next conflict zone is the next five years. So we need to have the right deterrence to stop that conflict, not one in a future, but then. And we are not ready for that and are not properly set up. Um, the RF has got limited budgets. It's trying to make a space force. It's trying to make the right focus. If it gets certain launch platforms out of Scotland, it will have a facility to launch capabilities. But I think that in a short period of time, laser battle stations will be in space. And they will be providing the same top cover that airplanes provided for surface forces in the Second World War. So it's critical. And the battle for space is really the battle for everything underneath it. So no, I don't think we put enough resources into it. I think we're paying lip service. But we're paying lip service to practically every other part of our defense protocol. Well, on that happy note, thank you guys for listening. There'll be a part two coming soon. Cheers, Dad, for your insight and your analogies. Don't know what I would have done without that castle, uh, was it, simile? Personification? It's not really personification. Don't forget the dinger is all I can say. Don't forget the dinger. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening, guys. David Murren specialises in using the past to predict the future and is an accomplished public speaker, hedge fund manager and market trader. To date, he's authored three books, Breaking the Code of History, Lives Led by Lions and Now or Never. His fourth, The Road to Wars, is due to come out in 2021. He also writes a blog on his website, www.davidmerrin.co.uk, where you can find more on his life, views, and work.